Oftentimes, people ask me what my, what my hobby is. What do I do for fun? Uh, and these days, I haven't had a lot of time for hobbies, but I would tell you in the past that riding my motorcycle would be one of them. Um, but I think the, the number one hobby I have is watching TV and criticizing the language of the commercials. Uh, I, and I, it may be disappointing for some of you to find out that that's what I enjoy most, to sit there and just kind of yell back at the television. You expect it deeper from your pastor. Uh, but let me, let me explain that this is deeply rooted in my family history. My dad is a bit of a linguist. Um, he's the kind of guy that doesn't just finish the crossword puzzle. He times himself to see how long it takes him to finish the crossword puzzle. Um, he has always been into language. One of the first things my dad bought me on the backside of graduating from college was a course on improving your vocabulary. And he's always really encouraged me in terms of uh, communicating and communicating clearly. And, and I wanted his approval so badly, I got a degree in journalism and another one in communications, and I teach communications. So, you know, it's really sort of ended up being sort of a part of my life. And sometimes if you're watching TV with me, it will get irritating because I just kind of critique the marketing practice, or, or particularly the, the abuse of language. And this is one of the things. Uh, every year they produce words that have been overused. You can see them online every year. They produce one. And, uh, and, and for instance, in the last couple of years, one of the overused words has been the word artisan. And if you ever heard that used in commercials, what people are uh, attributing that word to um, is, is it's getting stretched to its logical conclusion. Let me just say, uh, no disrespect to you, but if you work at Subway, you're not a sandwich artisan, okay? Uh, now, I've done that kind of work, so there's no shame in it, but I'm just saying, let's be humble enough to admit that there's no, nothing artistic about it. I'm, I'm actually more confused by uh, some of the things I hear with regards to sandwich shops these days when they say, um, and this is another overused phrase, but they say they have handcrafted sandwiches. What exactly is the alternative to handcrafted sandwiches? Robot-crafted sandwiches? I, I've never seen a machine put together a peanut butter and jelly. I just don't know what that's like. And so it seems strange to me. Um, one word that hasn't been on any of the overused lists that I was almost certain would be because I see it, and maybe it's my churchianity, just being around religious people and churches a lot, but the word authentic, you know, these are authentic things. You even see this little, this little sticker on things, authentic genes, or, you know, uh, sometimes we used to say genuine, you know, and then you'd see something like, this is genuine imitation leather, and you'd be like, hold on a second, that's confusing. <laughs> um, uh, authentic has lost its meaning in, in so many ways. There's, there's a website called rebootauthentic.com, and it's a uh, its blogger says the following about his desire to see the word take a vacation. He says, quote, Rest in peace, authenticity. Although your meaning remains intact, we just don't hear you anymore. Like rain in Seattle, you are so often seen, you go unnoticed. Together we pray that someday in the future, when people hear your name, they think of something real, genuine, and not copied. May your name never again be used to describe some unemployed kid playing Warcraft in his mother's basement who calls himself a success coach. You know? And this is really the, the, the nature of this word authenticity. Because when you talk about authentic community, what are we really saying? And 
yet here we are in Jude's letter amidst our study of the blood brothers of Jesus, Jude and James. And what Jude is going to do today is talk about his ABCs of authentic faith. Now, he did not design them as ABCs. I've taken the liberty to do so for our personal enjoyment. But at the same time, the essence of what Jude is saying is authentic Christianity, regardless of its denominational affiliation, regardless of what you think your history is, Jude is going to say, this is what a Christian looks like. This is what a Christian's life should encompass. These ABCs are A, apostolic faith, B, building faith, and C, caring faith. Yes, the essence of what Jude is going to say is that as Christians, this is what we should be doing. Now, in this part of the letter, what's going on is Jude is taking a turn away from what he has been doing, which has been calling out false teachers and speaking of the condemnation that is those of the false teachers. And now he's saying, comparatively, this is what you all should be doing. So let's, let's jump in with A. Jude would tell us today that authentic faith is an apostolic faith. I want to unpack this, what it means, an apostolic faith. Again, I read from the verses 17 and through 19, quote, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. When, when Jude speaks, he's speaking, as we've said earlier in this series, to the beloved. He's speaking to those who genuinely know deep down inside they have been loved dearly by God. They have been redeemed by God. They are secure knowing that they will eternally be with God by His grace through their faith in what Christ has done. If you have any questions about that piece, you can go back and listen to, to Sermon 1 in this Blood Brothers series. He's speaking to the beloved, and he tells them that authentic faith, apostolic faith, is defined by, is defined by two characteristics. The first would be it derives its authority from divinity, and the second, that there is most certainly going to be antagonism from dividers. These are the things that accompany a church, a faith, that is faithful to the teachings of Christ as communicated to the apostolic authority given to his, his chief apostles. When we speak of authority from divinity, we get this from Jude's declaration to them, to remember what was said to them. Now, some scholars think that the, the hearers of Jude's letter were actually in attendance and heard James, John, Peter say these things. And Jude knew them, and Jude was Jesus' brother, so it's altogether possible that this is time and space moment of actual hearing what the apostles had said to the ones whom Jude is writing to. It's also conceivable that by this time, things have begun to be written down, that multiple apostles have started to pen letters and write down authoritative prophecy. Either way, it is clear from Jude that the apostles were given their authority from Jesus, who is God in the flesh. And the reason we submit to Scripture as the final authority on all things of life and faith is the same reason our ecumenical creeds say we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Because we're confident that if Jesus really is alive, that we can trust Him ultimately. 
And he validated the Old Testament prophets, and he appointed or nominated or inaugurated the New Testament prophets by giving the apostles their authority to speak for him by the power of the Spirit. We believe Jesus is alive. It is Jesus' life, his resurrection, that makes us say we can trust that his appointing of apostles, his giving them authority, which he said in Matthew 28 after his resurrection that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. So go and make disciples. These apostles of his were given this same direct ability for him to speak through him, through them. Now, the New Testament prophecy is the same as the Old Testament prophecy in that it predicts, and this is why, you know, Jude speaks of their predictions. They had the authority to tell what the future of the church would be, and they foretold, quote, that there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And it wasn't just Jude and James. Peter, Paul, John, they all had something to say about this subject of false teachers. This was not news to them. They knew it was coming right away. Now, it is odd for us because we see quite a bit of that crazy sort of off-the-beaten-path weird theology kind of stuff. All you got to do is turn on the televangelists and you see some stuff that you kind of go scratch your head and about. You know, you go, is that really what people think is true? You know, there are seemingly people just taking advantage of Christianity and people act like this is the first time it's ever happened. It happened almost as quick as the church was established. People said, wow, we can really take advantage of these people. They're gullible. They're, they're vulnerable. So let's pretend we're religious figures that maybe we have this divine power and people will just start coughing up the cash. And so there's a, there is an actual word of caution for all of us in this. But the apostle Peter, very early on in the first century, was saying this in 2 Peter verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. False prophets arose from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So you can see this is to be expected. Peter's speaking from authority that says this is going to happen. John, James, Jude, they all say the same thing. With the authority of apostolic prophecy, they say this is going to happen. So what Jude is saying is for us to gauge, if we're going to have a gauge on what's true, what's not true, it's going to be rooted in Scripture and what we now know to be codified as the Bible Old Testament, New Testament, the prophecies of Jesus' apostles serve for us. Authentic faith is an apostolic faith. Its authority is from divinity. And then there's most certainly, as has been showed and shared in Scripture already, there is certainly an antagonism that's going to come from dividers. It's said of false prophets that they cause these divisions, that they're worldly people, and that they are, quote, devoid of the Spirit. Well, what this means is that they are not Christians because the Holy Spirit does not live in them. The ultimate distinction between a person who is an authentic or genuine Christian and one who is not 
is the bottom line question about whether the spirit of the living God resides in them. This is what we will celebrate and talk about next week on Pentecost Sunday with our big blowout Sunday experience coming up. Oddly, these same false prophets of the first century who set themselves up as super-Christians with a supposed miracle power by the Spirit, Judas saying they did not possess the Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not live in them. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on Jude, says they divide these these. Div- these false prophets, they divide the church by setting themselves up as superior to ordinary Christians, as the Gnostics did, dividing church, dividing the church into spiritual and worldly members. This is a tendency not unheard of today. You and I are challenged that if we're going to be people who are balanced, who are people that are steady Christians, we've got to be rooted in the teachings of the apostles. We've got to be strongly convicted of the things that Scripture says. In Romans 16, 17, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. The answer, avoid them. See, there is a time where it is appropriate to say, I'm just not going to turn on that particular Christian TV channel. I'm just going to avoid these people who are teaching stuff that, Deep down inside, I get the sense that this is not rooted in Scripture, and I'm going to turn away from that. Authentic faith is an apostolic faith, A. B, authentic faith is a building faith. I love what Jude tells us, the beloved. It says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Once again, referring to somebody, the presumption that you know that your life is found in being loved by God, that you, your life is found in being energized by the realities of the gospel that you know and you walk with and you talk with and you, you're experiencing the power of His Spirit in your life. If that's true for us, if you read this sentence the way we would grammatically, this is the English Standard Version, the way this would read out in a normal conversation would be keep yourself in the love of God by building yourself up and praying in the Holy Spirit. So he's telling us this is how you build your faith. It's really twofold. One is piety and action. The second way of building your faith is patience in anticipation. Now, Jude's brother, James, will say this when we begin to dissect his teaching in the next month. James will say that a faith that is not in action is not real faith. He'll say faith without works is dead. Jude is saying virtually the same thing. He's saying genuine faith is not just a belief system built around a church like attendance. It is, in fact, a life built around relating to the risen Christ who lives in the authentic, genuine Christian. Our call is to build up our most holy faith. This is not the church's most holy faith. It is your faith. It is your walk with God. And this is the trick for some. If you were raised in, in church, but you never really liked it all that much, and then you started hanging around with religious people, and they would use terminology like, 
uh, your relationship with God. That was just not a part of the, the dialogue of my life. That was not the parlance of the childhood church experience I had. But in reality, it's imperative. He is talking about encountering and interacting with the presence of the Spirit in your life. He is saying, build up your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. This is where some charismatic Christians get a little off track here. If you had a, a I was raised Catholic and then had my own personal experience with Jesus in a Pentecostal church and I kind of gravitated in and out of different denominations to arrive where I am today. But I'll say that one of the things I experienced as a young, like, kid like trying to dig his way through Pentecostalism is oftentimes when people said things like praying in the Holy Spirit that would mean praying in tongues and in this case that's not what that's talking about he is contrasting the interaction with the Holy Spirit in your life with the false teachers who he had just previously said do not have the Spirit so he's making a very clear comparison and contrast he said of them They are ungodly people, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. They did not have the Spirit in them. For us, praying in the Spirit is abiding in. It is saying, if it is a reality that Jesus rose from the dead, and if it is true, as Scripture would testify, that anybody who's a genuine believer has the Holy Spirit living in them. That is not true of a person who is not a follower of Christ. A genuine believer has the Spirit. A person who may pay homage to religious history but not have an interactive, enjoyable, personally engaging relationship with Jesus does not have the Spirit in them. He's saying, assuming you have this Spirit in you, then what it means to walk with Jesus, what it means to grow in your faith, is to abide and live in that reality, engaging with the Spirit through prayer. It means you have to set prayer and meditation on Scripture and fellowship with others who are on this path, all priorities in your life. They are the means to keep us feeding on the love of Christ for our whole life. It is only by walking closely with Jesus, filled with his spirit, that we are able to produce the fruit of the spirit, the things that would characterize our lives. The starting point for being A Christian who looks like a Christian is actually being one who would abide in the presence of Christ. This is where it all starts. If you don't get the very basic gospel that Jesus died for you, that he lives in you, that you are actually having a relationship that God is not way out there somewhere, but he lives in you, that you are right with God through Christ, that you are okay with him, if you're not secure that you're going to go to heaven and not because you did a really good job church attendance or following the rules but you know christ lives in you and that's the means by which you're at peace with god if you don't know these things you're never going to be one who thinks i want to build this faith why would you build something that made you miserable why would you pursue something that has made you miserable thus far the fruit the byproduct of genuine faith comes if you have genuine faith this is where jesus says in john 15 Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. 
You see, the challenge for us in terms of pietistic activity is that it's an ongoing process. We, as we sing in our, one of our hymns, we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We all know that deep down inside we are drawn towards things that uh, are shiny like a, like a lure to a fish and yet not realizing that there's a hook in it. It is a challenge for us to look to God, to abide in Him. And the Christian finds their life in walking with the Spirit who lives in us. This is a lifelong process. And our nature is prone to looking to things other than the Lord's presence in our lives to give us life. Some things that are good, fun, recreation, our jobs, our kids, the things that we possess. These are all good things. But sometimes when we make them ultimate things, they just take over our lives. It requires grace and patience to trust and wait for the Lord's provision. And this is really the second means of a building faith. Jude would say that a building faith has piety and action, but it also has patience and anticipation. Jude instructs us to be, quote, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, this isn't talking about saving grace that would help you achieve eternal life. It is not talking about the soon return of Christ. What he's speaking of is waiting for the daily mercies that leads us to a place of enjoying and thriving as believers. And this is difficult. It requires patience to wait for God's provision instead of taking ungodly shortcuts to meet the needs. Perhaps we want joy, but instead of engaging the Lord and His Spirit for this, we go and get drunk because it's easier and quicker. Maybe we need peace amidst troubling circumstances, but we take the, the, the shortcut of using drugs to numb us to those feelings. Maybe we long for love, but instead of waiting for God's provision, we look for and we look to illicit sex or unbiblical means of getting that love entering into romantic relationships with people whose scriptures say you can't marry, or hooking up for casual sex instead of waiting till you're married. Or for many, especially men in our culture, it's a retreat into sexual fantasy and pornography. And these seem to meet immediate needs. You have a need for love. You have a need for affirmation. You have a need for peace. You have a need for joy. And it's right there, that shiny lure. And you grab it because it's immediate And then you find out later it's probably going to kill you. There was a survival training guide out for a while. The SEALs used it. Other organizations used it. It was basically teaching people how to survive if they ever were stuck out in the middle of the ocean. You're in a raft. How do you survive? And it started, this survival guide, in in World War II when some ships would get sunk in the middle of the Pacific and, and then they'd have to wait, sometimes weeks, to be recovered. And so they had a a list of things that were critical to your survival. And it's surprising that two of the things that were most critical, uh, one I completely didn't understand, the other one I did. One of them is they were supposed to have on them at all times a pocket mirror, which I thought was a strange thing to need. I mean, checking your hair and your makeup while you're floating around in the ocean. You know, what in the world are you going to use that for? And it's so you can signal planes, really high-flying planes. You can actually, with a mirror, a pocket mirror, reflect the sun, and they would see it that far up. Isn't that amazing? 
the other thing that makes a whole lot more sense to me is we need water. I mean, you need lots of it. If you don't drink fresh water, you will die. And so they would say, by all means, collect it. Find ways to collect fresh water in your raft. But that involves patience because maybe it's not going to rain anytime soon. It involves discipline because you look around your boat and you see nothing but water and you think, okay, I'll drink some salt water. Now, the problem there is this. In addition to tasting poorly, uh, drinking salt water is a bad idea because it actually facilitates, increases dehydration. You see, you take a few gulps of ocean water and your body will have to urinate more water than you drank to get rid of all the extra salt, leaving you thirstier than you were before. And boy, if there is not a more apt depiction of sin, I don't know. I mean, I can tell you from personal experience, you try something, you think this will do the trick, and it just makes you thirstier. There's never enough. When I had issues drinking back when I was younger, it, was, there, it would take an escalating amount of alcohol to get me to be drunk. This, that's the nature of sin. A little bit's never enough. It never satiates. And in the end, it ends up killing you. And so it requires patience. And it takes us faith and, and really grace to be able to say, I will wait for your provision because in the short run, I'm so prone to doing things that are not going to build up my faith but actually be destructive of it. Authentic faith is an apostolic faith. Authentic faith is a building faith. The C of our ABCs of authenticity is that authentic faith is a caring faith. Jude says in verses 22 and 23, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. We are called to reach out to those who are in need this is an echo of not only Jesus, Jude's half-brother, but James, Jesus, Jude's full brother. They say many of the same things. Jude describes authentic, caring faith as, one, compassion for strugglers, and two, caution for your own snags. James makes the case in his letter, which we'll study next month, that authentic faith is defined by reaching out to orphans and widows, and it is true. But that's only part of what it means to have a caring faith. Jude clearly lists the merciful treatment of those in seasons of doubt and those who are actively wandering from the Christian faith to pursue any number of things. But this is part of genuine caring as well. Jude says, have mercy. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear. So the response to people who are struggling, maybe they have an area of disobedience, they have a big mistake they made, they're doubting perhaps whether or not they really believe everything they were told as kids is not to be like a jerk about it, it's not to beat people up. That's why people can't stand going to small groups, because if I tell you how I really feel, are you going to jump up in my face and say, you really should believe that, you know you should really believe that, you know that, did you know that? I mean, and, and who wants that? I, I, I have no time for that. These are echoes of what Jesus said in Luke 15, 4, that we're to leave the 99 sheep to go find the one lost one. We're to have compassion for strugglers, but there's a cautionary note that Jude wants you to make. He says, you need to show mercy with fear in some cases, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. We're supposed to help others, 
But it is not a contradiction to do so cautiously. Jude encourages us to show this mercy with great caution. And practically that means if you are, for instance, an alcoholic, it's really okay for you to not go into bars to share your faith with other people. And Jude's giving you a pass. He's saying it's okay. If you're a young man and you feel like supporting a ministry that's going into strip clubs to help young women, you shouldn't be one of the ones going inside. You want to donate some money because those ministries are really great, reaching out to girls who are really hurting, but it would be absolutely foolish for a man of any age, frankly, to go in there and say, hey, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. It won't be a long conversation. You will get distracted. So what I'm saying to you is that Jude is giving you a pass. He's saying, you know what? You've got to be careful. You've got to be careful where you go. Sometimes that means I've got to quit hanging out with this crowd. And all of us get there at some point where we realize, you know what? It doesn't please Jesus that I gamble my savings away whenever I hang out with these buddies and we head to Pachanga. You know, I, I blow everything that my family has saved. So you know what? To resist that temptation, I'm probably just going to have to quit hanging out with those guys. It's a hard truth to swallow, but it is saying if that's an area of weakness for you, the gospel frees you to say, you know what? These are just some people that I'm not going to be the person who reaches them, and that's okay. There is a danger associated with all of that. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 6, he says, If anyone's caught in any any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So there we are again, the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch of yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the love of Christ. We're supposed to be cautious. Do you know that since they started climbing Mount Everest and actually summiting Mount Everest, that they've had over 250 deaths. Most of them, as you can see from this graph, have taken place since the 1980s. The interesting thing is is that over 80% of those bodies still remain up on Mount Everest. Do you know why? Because it's dangerous to go get them. Because you can actually die trying to rescue somebody else. As is pointed out by a BBC writer journalist Rachel Neuer, she says returning a body to a family costs thousands of dollars and requires the efforts of six to eight Sherpas, potentially putting those men's lives in danger. You know, the weather is unpredictable. Picking up the lightest of things takes a ton. And you know what they also say is is that these bodies get encased in ice, potentially doubling the, the weight that they would be needed to carry down the mountain And so over 200 bodies remain entombed up there. And you know what? That's the wisest thing to do. It's the wisest thing to do. It doesn't sound compassionate to some, but you have to think about all the people that would die trying to get your loved one to a place where you could bury them warmly. Uh, Their body will actually be better preserved encased in ice up on Mount Everest if you're concerned about those kinds of things. So I would say that is reminiscent or really emblematic of the kind of compassion we have we say gosh that's really i'm really sad but i can't be the person to go do that now sometimes you can be and jude would say like snatching somebody out of the fire grab them 
but not if you're going to end up in the fire. We're told that when people come around and they're struggling with doubt and fear, that we're supposed to be merciful to them. There's caring. There's a building of our faith. There's an apostolic rooting of our faith. That's how we discern what truth is. And this is the challenge in our culture. It's not just us. I think it's a challenge in Europe, too. I've interacted recently with some pastors in Europe. Similarly, people have decided that they're going to define the means by which they're going to grow. So God has made it fairly clear in his word that the means of his grace, the the vehicles by which he's ready to pour into our lives include things like prayer and the Holy Spirit, interacting. There's no shortcut. You can't grow in your relationship with God unless you pray. That we are to be nourished by the word. And yet, if I came to you in this culture and said, you know what? I know we all think our bodies need food and nutrients, but I have decided that I have a whole new way that I'm going to take care of my body for the rest of my life, and it's just going to be drinking Diet Coke. That's all I'm going to do, and that's actually pretty close to true for me right now anyway. No, I'm serious. If I said I eat no food at all, and all I'm going to do is drink Diet Coke, after a while, you folks would probably graciously, hopefully say you realize your body was made for more than the chemicals in Diet Coke that you need vitamins, and that you need all sorts of things that come from real food. I can't just make up the way that I'm supposed to grow in health. I mean, but in our culture, that's kind of sort of what happens. I don't think I have to do what you say I have to do, Bible, uh, to grow spiritually. I'm just going to say, you know what I can do to grow spiritually? I can play my favorite game. I'm going to play soccer on Sunday mornings. That's how I'm going to grow spiritually. It's like, well, you know what? That is a great thing. It is a lot of fun. But the means of grace is worshiping with other fellow believers, sacrament, the word. The means of grace for us are poured out in the scriptures. It's interacting and encouraging and being around others who will remind you of these gospel truths. You see, God isn't trying to make your life miserable. He's trying to get you to eat and drink the things that will actually bring health into your life. This is what it means for somebody to be an authentic Christian. Let's pray to that end, shall we? Our Father, we're thankful that you love us. We're thankful that even on today's days like today, when we recognize all of us are woefully short in the disciplines that we seem to think are uh, critical for growth and your word says are critical for growth, we confess to you that we've only been hurting ourselves by not spending time with you, not thinking of you, not praying, not making a priority out of being in fellowship with others who really genuinely want to be close to you. So I would just pray that today you would inspire us not by any guilt, but instead by a longing that's in our soul, a longing that says, I need more than I've been experiencing in you. And that you would reward and bless by your grace those who are hungry for growth in you. Would you bless them as they pursue you? Would you give them grace to prioritize being where you want to pour out into their lives? We pray in Jesus' name.